Hi, and welcome back to Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake. My name is Rabia Chaudhary, and I'm your host. In this week's episode, we confront one of our greatest fears, our own death, and the question of whether, if we had the power, we would even want to know when it was coming. The Coffin Merchant by Richard Middleton. Part 1 London on a November Sunday inspired Eustace Reynolds with a melancholy too insistent to be ignored and too causeless to be enjoyed. The grey sky overhead between the housetops, the cold wind round every street corner, the sad faces of the men and women on the pavements, combined to create an atmosphere of ineloquent misery. Eustace was sensitive to impressions, and in spite of a half-conscious effort to remain a dispassionate spectator of the world's melancholy, he felt the chill of the aimless day creeping over his spirit. Why was there no sun, no warmth, no laughter on earth? What had become of all the children who keep laughter like a mask on the faces of disillusioned men? The wind blew down Southampton Street and chilled Eustace to a shiver that passed away in a shudder of disgust at the somber color of life. A windy Sunday in London before the lamps are lit tempts a man to believe in the nobility of work. At the corner by Charing Cross Telegraph Office, a man thrust a handbill under his eyes, but he shook his head impatiently. The blueness of the fingers that offered him the paper was alone sufficient to make him disinclined to remove his hands from his pockets even for an instant. But the man would not be dismissed so lightly. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said following him. "'You have not looked to see what my bills are.' "'Whatever they are, I don't want them.' "'That's where you are wrong, sir,' the man said earnestly. "'You will never find life interesting if you do not lie in wait for the unexpected. "'As a matter of fact, I believe that my bill contains exactly what you do want.' Eustace looked at the man with quick curiosity. His clothes were ragged, and the visible parts of his flesh were blue with cold, but his eyes were bright with intelligence, and his speech was that of an educated man." It seemed to Eustace that he was being regarded with a keen expectancy, as though his decision on the trivial point was of real importance. "'I don't know what you're driving at,' he said, "'but if it will give you any pleasure, I will take one of your bills. Though if you argue with all your clients as you have with me, it must take you a long time to get rid of them.' "'I only offer them to suitable persons,' the man said, folding up one of the handbills while he spoke, "'and I'm sure you will not regret taking it.' and he slipped the paper into Eustace's hand and walked rapidly away. Eustace looked after him curiously for a moment and then opened the paper in his hand. When his eyes comprehended its significance, he gave a low whistle of astonishment. You will soon be wanting a coffin, it read. At 606 Gray's Inn Road, your order will be attended to with civility and dispatch. Call and see us. Eustace swung round quickly to look for the man, but he was out of sight. The wind was growing colder, and the lamps were beginning to shine out in the graying streets. Eustace crumbled the paper into his overcoat pocket and turned homewards. How silly, he said to himself, in conscious amusement. The sound of his footsteps on the pavement rang like an echo to his laugh. Part 2 
Eustace was impressionable but not temperamentally morbid, and he was troubled a little by the fact that the gruesomely bizarre handbill continued to recur to his mind. The thing was so manifestly absurd, he told himself with conviction, that it was not worth a second thought. But this did not prevent him from thinking of it again and again. What manner of undertaker could hope to obtain business by giving away foolish handbills in the streets? Really, the whole thing had an air of a brainless practical joke. Yet his intellectual fairness forced him to admit that as far as the man who had given him the bill was concerned, brainlessness was out of the question and joking improbable. There had been depths in those little bright eyes which his glance had not been able to sound, and the man's manner in making him accept the handbill had given the whole transaction a kind of ludicrous significance. You will soon be wanting a coffin. Eustace found himself turning the words over and over in his mind. If he had any near relations, he might have construed the thing as an elaborate threat. But he was practically alone in the world, and it seemed to him that he was not likely to want a coffin for anyone but himself. Oh, damn the thing, he said impatiently as he opened the door of his flat. It isn't worth worrying about. I mustn't let the whim of some mad tradesman get on my nerves. I've got no one to bury, anyhow. Nevertheless, the thing lingered with him all the evening, and when his neighbor, the doctor, came in for a chat at 10 o'clock, Eustace was glad to show him the strange handbill. The doctor, who had experienced the queer magics that are practiced to this day on the west coast of Africa, and who, therefore, had no nerves, was delighted with so striking an example of British commercial enterprise. Though, mind you, he added gravely, smoothing the crumpled paper on his knee, this sort of thing might do a lot of harm if it fell into the hands of a nervous subject. I should be inclined to punch the head of the ass who perpetrated it. Have you turned up that address in the post office directory? Eustace shook his head and rose and fetched the fat red book which makes London an English city. Together they found the Gray's Inn Road and ran their eyes down to number 606. Harding, G.J., Coffin Merchant and Undertaker. Not much information there, muttered the doctor. Coffin Merchant's a bit unusual, isn't it? queried Eustace. I suppose he manufactures coffins wholesale for the trade. Still, I didn't know they called themselves that. Anyhow, it seems as though the handbill is a genuine piece of downright foolishness. The idiot ought to be stopped advertising in that way. I'll go and see him myself tomorrow, said Eustace bluntly. Well, he's given you an invitation, said the doctor, so it's only polite of you to go. I'll drop in here in the evening to hear what he's like. I expect you'll find him as mad as a hatter. Something like that, said Eustace, or he wouldn't give handbills to people like me. I have no one to bury but myself. No, said the doctor in the hall. I suppose you haven't. Don't let him measure you for a coffin, Reynolds. Eustace laughed. We never know, he said sententiously. Nighty Night is fueled by Factor. 
Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Look, listen, I'm all about home cooking, but I am a working mom with like, I don't know, 18 jobs. So I totally get how hard it can be to cook a meal at home for yourself or your family fresh like every day. That's where Factor comes in. Because with Factor, you have pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. It's literally the closest thing you can get to home cooking without having to turn on your stove. You get over 35 different options a week to choose from, and you can also, like, you know, if you got some special needs, you want to do only keto, you're doing counting your calories, they have a calorie smart program, they've got vegan and veggie options too. Plus, they have over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons. Now, I'm going to be honest, it is even harder for me to be motivated to cook when it's cold and windy and rainy and snowy, and the wintertime, I am just not fueled. And I love Factor for that reason, because they have these wonderful, wholesome, warm meals, like they're absolutely delicious turkey, chili, and zucchini with ancho, lime, crema. Listen, I'm never going to be able to cook something like that, but you don't have to with Factor and neither do I. And by the way, if you're worried about cost, Factor is actually less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious as well as delicious. You can get as many or as little meals as you need by choosing between six and 18 meals per week. And you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, there's no cooking, there's no cleanup needed. So head to factormeals.com slash 9050 and use code 9050 to get 50 50% off. That's 90, N-I-G-H-T-Y, and the number 550 to get 50% off. Once again, that's code 9050 at factormeals.com slash 9050 to get 50% off. This week's episode of Nighty Night is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or spooky bedtime stories, you call the shots on what is in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote and you'll be able to choose the best option for you. Fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Head over to Progressive.com today to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Part 3 Next day was one of those gorgeous blue days of which November gives but few and Eustace was glad to run out to Wimbledon for a game of golf, or rather for two. It was therefore dusk before he made his way to the Gray's Inn Road in search of the unexpected. His attitude toward his errand, despite the doctor's laughter and the prosaic entry in the directory, was a little confused. He could not help reflecting that after all, the doctor had not seen the man with the little wise eyes, nor could he forget that Mr. G. J. Harding's description of himself as a coffet merchant, to say the least of it, approached the unusual. Yet, he felt that it would be intolerable to chop the whole business without finding out what it all meant. On the whole, he would have preferred not to have discovered the riddle at all, but having found it, he could not rest without an answer. Number 606, Gray's Inn Road, was not like an ordinary undertaker's shop. The window was heavily draped with black cloth, but was otherwise unadorned. There were no letters from grateful mourners, 
no little model coffins, no photographs of marble memorials. Even more surprising was the absence of any name over the shop door, so that the uninformed stranger could not possibly tell what trade was carried on within or who was responsible for the management of the business. This uncommercial modesty did not tend to remove Eustace's doubts as to the sanity of Mr. G.J. Harding, but he opened the shop door, which started a large bell swinging noisily and stepped over the threshold. The shop was hardly more expressive inside than out. A broad counter ran across it, cutting it in two, and in the partial gloom overhead, a naked gas burner whistled a noisy song. Beyond this, the shop contained no furniture whatever, and no stock in trade except a few planks leaning against the wall in one corner. There was a large inkstand on the counter. Eustace waited patiently for a minute or two, and then, as no one came, he began stamping on the floor with his foot. This proved efficacious, for soon he heard the sound of footsteps ascending wooden stairs, the door behind the counter opened, and a man came into the shop. He was dressed quite neatly now, and his hands were no longer blue with cold, but Eustace knew at once that it was the man who had given him the handbill. Nevertheless, he looked at Eustace without a sign of recognition. "'What can I do for you, sir?' he asked pleasantly. Eustace laid the handbill down on the counter. "'I want to know about this,' he said. "'It strikes me as being in pretty bad taste, and if a nervous person got hold of it, it might be dangerous.' You think so, sir? Yet our representative, he lingered affectionately on the words, our representative told you, I believe, that the handbill was only distributed to suitable cases. That's where you are wrong, said Eustace sharply, for I have no one to bury. Except yourself, said the coffin merchant suavely. Eustace looked at him keenly. I don't see, he began, but the coffin merchant interrupted him. You must know, sir, he said, that this is no ordinary undertaker's business. We possess information that enables us to defy competition in our special class of trade. Information? Well, if you prefer it, you may say intuitions. If our representative handed you that advertisement, it was because he knew you would need it. Excuse me, said Eustace, you appear to be sane, but your words do not convey to me any reasonable significance. You gave me that foolish advertisement yourself, and now you say you did so because you knew I would need it? I ask you why. The coffin merchant shrugged his shoulders. Ours is a sentimental trade, he said. I do not know why dead men want coffins, but they do. For my part, I would wish to be cremated. Dead men? Ah, I was coming to that. You see, Mr. Reynolds. Thank you. My name is Harding. G.J. Harding. You see, Mr. Reynolds, our intuitions are of a very special character, and if we say that you will need a coffin, it is probable that you will need one. You mean to say that I... Precisely. In 24 hours or less, Mr. Reynolds, you will need our services. The revelation of the coffin merchant's insanity came to Eustace with a certain relief. For the first time in the interview, he had a sense of the dark, empty shop and the whistling gas jet over his head. Why, it sounds like a threat, Mr. Harding, he said gaily. The coffin merchant looked at him oddly and produced a printed form from his pocket. If you would fill this up, he said. Eustace picked it up off the counter and laughed aloud. It was an order for a hundred guinea funeral. 
I don't know what your game is, he said, but this has gone on long enough. Perhaps it has, Mr. Reynolds, said the coffin merchant, and he leaned across the counter and looked Eustace straight in the face. For a moment, Eustace was amused. Then he was suddenly afraid. I think it's time I... He began slowly, and then he was silent, his whole will intent on fighting the eyes of the coffin merchant. The song of the gas jet waned to a point in his ears and then rose steadily till it was like the beating of the world's heart. The eyes of the coffin merchant grew larger and larger till they blended in one great circle of fire. Then Eustace picked the pen off the counter and filled in the form. Thank you very much, Mr. Reynolds, said the coffin merchant, shaking hands with him politely. I can promise you every civility and dispatch. Good day, sir. Outside on the pavement, Eustace stood for a while trying to recall exactly what had happened. There was a slight scratch on his hand, and when he automatically touched it with his lips, it made them burn. The lit lamps in the Gray's Inn Road seemed to him a little unsteady, and the passers-by showed a disposition to blunder into him. Queer business, he said dimly. I'd better have a cab. He reached home in a dream. It was nearly 10 o'clock before the doctor remembered his promise, and he went upstairs to Eustace's flat. The outer door was half open so that he thought he was expected, and he switched on the light in the little hall and shut the door behind him with the simplicity of habit. But when he swung round from the door, he gave a cry of astonishment. Eustace was lying asleep in a chair before him with his face flushed and drooping on his shoulder and his breath hissing noisily through his parted lips. The doctor looked at him quizzically. I did not know you, my young friend, he remarked. I should say that you were drunk as a lord. And he went up to Eustace and shook him by the shoulder. But Eustace did not wake up. Queer, the doctor muttered, sniffing at Eustace's lips. He hasn't been drinking. But wait, there's more to the story. In Richard Middleton's The Coffin Merchant, we spend one man's final day with him as he marches directly toward his final breaths. When we meet Eustace Reynolds, he seems incredulous, if not a bit miffed, at the premonition of doom literally and figuratively thrust upon him. He insists first to himself and then to his friend that he dismisses the man with the bright eyes and ice-cold hands as a scam artist, or perhaps even insane. But the author signals us throughout that our narrator not only believes the man, but seems intent on learning his fate in those final hours by following the instructions of the premonition requiring his compliance. For many, the question is not whether or not fate comes for us, but would we really want to know exactly where and when? The nameless chilling figure of the coffin merchant working out of 606 Gray's Inn Road is understood to be an embodiment of death, coming for someone whose time is up and even granting the chosen victim an opportunity to set his affairs in order should he choose to accept this fate is now upon him. The use of shadowy strangers as harbingers of an inevitable death is part of storytelling quite literally as old as storytelling itself. 
For the first couple thousand years of these, they were primarily shared through the oral tradition, passed down through generation after generation of audiences gathered round fireplaces on dark and stormy nights. The written versions of these tales began to appear in the 14th century, and for much of the next 500 years, all over the world, the most common underlying theme of this divination storytelling was the plague. Through both allegory and allusion, these frightening figures foretold of death by disease coming for unlucky victims with no chance of escape. What's more, with each wave of a disease or epidemic spreading through communities and regions at a time when medicine offered little to no chance of relief or cure, these individuals would have likely known their end was just around the corner. Many of the stories in this tradition understand this and pose the question of whether or not it is more frightening to know death is rapidly approaching and prepare for it, and in doing so have peace in the final moments. Or does the combination of denial and hope free one of fear in the short term, only to create terror with one's final breaths? In The Coffin Merchant, Middleton seems to have chosen a side in this debate. As civilizations experienced plagues with less frequency, this style of scary storytelling changed shape to take on all manner of horrors that might befall one in nightmares and in real life. Most typically, however, they will broadly take the shape of a given generation or society's most fundamental fears. For a very long time, that was wave after wave of the plague. Through the 19th century, as tuberculosis ravaged Europe and America, writers like Edgar Allan Poe addressed it with stories like The Mask of the Red Death. To the Victorians, it was the way industrialization and greed were crushing the poor in the form of Charles Dickens' Mr. Scrooge. Richard Middleton shared his own demons in The Coffin Merchant, but also those echoed by countless artists and writers of this generation when he told us of, quote, a melancholy too insistent to be ignored in the lead-up to his meeting at 606 Gray's Inn Road. At a time when society was beginning to come with grips with a kind of generalized despair, as well as individualized depression, Middleton would only be one of a number of gifted artists who took his own life at a young age. Hal warned the world that technology would destroy us in his threats to the small crew in Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and the computer in War Games starring a very young Matthew Broderick foretold of the end by inevitable nuclear annihilation. The entire horror movie genre, beginning with classics like Halloween and Friday the 13th, continuing through the Final Destination series, and even in more subtly messaged horror films like It Follows and Us, asks us all to confront the struggle with right versus wrong, selfishness versus selflessness, or pay with our individual lives and civilizational doom. In each and every one of these, and of course countless others, there's a mysterious entity, one recognizable to us yet still chillingly inhuman, that points a hooked finger of doom at one lone person, pulling them into the grips of death. But the implication has always been that at the end of the day, we are all staring down a larger destruction that only this bright-eyed, cold, blue-fingered figure knows is certain. Nighty Night is co-produced and distributed by Podcast One. It's also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella for Workhouse Media. Editing and sound design by Steve Delamater. And a big thanks to my executive producer, Stacey Perra. And finally, a thank you to Sarah Kalin, my researcher for the extra little tidbits at the end of every story. Thank you guys for listening. Until next time, Nighty Night.